I think Mark Wickersham is like speaking more of my language. He seems like he's got the impression of being tall, tall British man. He's oh man, I would I would love to have him on one day. I think Ron Baker's more of like the professor, and Mark Wickersham's like the older brother. Like we have a very special guest. I'll let you introduce the guest. We'll try to keep my talking to a minimum because <laughs> usually I tend to veer off the rails right. sometimes. Let's let's do the intro. All right. Hello and welcome. We are the Sons of CPAs. Join us as we question the current state of the accounting and tax industry in the United States or abroad with the next generation of professionals leading this space. Not just the United States, everywhere. Sorry. That's not even part of it. We are the change agents in an industry fraught with money and inertia. Let's begin the Sons of CPAs with your hosts, Jason Ackerman and Scott Scarano. And we have a special guest, Mark Wickerson. Hello there. Great to see you. Absolutely the international episode, right? You you are, yeah, we are, I'm in France. Mark is in Portugal and Scott's in North Carolina. (laughs) So we were taught, so first question, you're you're English. You had an accounting firm in England and now you live in Portugal. Yeah, that's right. So, so why'd you move to Portugal? Well, partly the weather. In the UK, it's way too cold. The winters are awful, snow and ice. I'm a cyclist and I've crashed enough times on snow and ice to uh, decide (laughs) I don't want to spend winters in the UK anymore. For years, I've always wanted to be somewhere in either France, Spain, Portugal. It's been been part of my plan for over a decade now. Uh, But a decade ago, I was running a physical business, so that wasn't possible. So I had to, firstly, I had to change my business structure to enable that to happen. So I've been working on that for for some years, and then we finally made the move in 2020, actually during the middle of the pandemic and lockdown. Originally, we were going to do Spain, but then we changed our mind to go to Portugal because partly, probably no surprise, tax reasons as well. So uh, in Portugal, we don't pay tax for 10 years. So that's a pretty good reason. So if you move to Portugal, you don't have to pay tax for 10 years. No, under something called the NHR rules, which applies to anyone in Europe moving to Portugal and getting resident doesn't have to pay tax. But that came to an end for the UK because of Brexit. So we had to do it before December 2020. It kind of put a, a, a window of opportunity. It did. Yes, absolutely. The yes. ripple effects of Brexit. When you have something like Brexit that forced you to do something, it kind of forced you. I don't know when you were going to plan to move to Portugal, but I think we had a similar event in the accounting space, which is COVID. And it forced a lot of practices to really accelerate their change. I don't know if Brexit and COVID are directly related. That, that was an, that's an analogy. An exterior guy. event, yeah. <laughs> Analog- analogy. So, so, Mark, what have you seen from a county firm since COVID has hit? Yeah, I, I kind of think nothing's changed. And, I mean, I've been saying to people for many years now, probably four or five years that that the world's going to change and that we will be increasingly online not just with cloud accounting software because we've, we've been moving to qbo and zero for a long time but not just that but the way we communicate is going to change with more people using zoom and so on and actually i think what COVID's done is it's accelerated that whole process that people are then having to work from home and, and with lockdowns uh, which for me when I've talked to people about the, the last uh, 12, 18 months, actually most people are saying to me that they've had their best year. I've had my best year, and most people I speak to have had their best year because I think that being forced to move to a more virtual environment opens up so many opportunities, efficiencies, and a different way of working. I know that in the early days, in 
March 2020, there was a lot of panic, people worrying about what might happen. I know many businesses were were struggling in certain industries like restaurants, travel, and so many accounting firms that had those sorts of clients were worrying as well. But I think that it didn't take that long, two or three months from what I saw, that people started to adapt to a, a new way of working. And, and some of them, not all, but many have adapted really, really well. To that point, too, a lot of firms maybe already had a mindset shift prior to COVID and they didn't really have to adapt. They could have just picked up and went went home remote. Some of them really needed that mindset shift to say, I can do this remotely or I'm able to. And then that allowed some of them to really change. I think in the United States, especially, a lot of them thought they had to be in an office and they had to do things with their clients face to face or with their team. Once they found out that they could get mobile, it opened up their world. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I was very lucky because I'd already planned that I wanted to move overseas. I had to build my business up to be purely virtual, which I've been doing for the last six years, seven years now. So it was actually didn't make any difference to me whatsoever. But also I know that the firms that I work with, uh, a lot of them had started moving to things like virtual bookkeeping businesses before then anyway. And I think the, the people that I work with who have virtual business have been, have been saying on my sessions, oh, it, this is a great business model. And I think increasingly firms are starting to look at that and think, oh, that is an interesting model. If we don't have to have expensive offices and we don't have to commute every day in traffic jams to get to work, I think the advantages are far outweigh any potential disadvantages. Speaking of commuting and traffic jams, cycling, you're a big cyclist, aren't you? Absolutely, yeah. Well, you should actually come where our office is. We have, we're the only place in the world that has the five Olympic disciplines of cycling. We have a cyclocross, a velodrome. I don't know the other ones. You probably know them. Oh, wow. Wow. Impressive. So, okay. So tell us why you decided way back in the day, why you decided to get into accounting. Oh, right. Well, that was all a big accident. <laughs> and, and the reason for that. So I mean, it's actually a funny story because I, I went to university in, in Sheffield in the UK in 1985. And I decided that I would, I, I, my, when I was at school, I did economics and I went to do a degree in joint economics and accounting. I thought that'd be cool, do a bit of both. And in the first 12 months, I hated the accounting so much, I dropped it and did a pure economics degree. Uh, I, I didn't understand it. I, and that was because, and forgive me, but uh, it was because a lot of the textbooks that were being used in the university were from were, were American-based textbooks and and used different terminology. You have inventory rather than stock. You have accounts receivables rather than debtors. Your balance sheet is done a different way. And I couldn't get my head around it. I thought, this is crazy. So I'll stick with economics. I kind of know that. I feel safe and comfortable. So I dropped it. But I had no idea whatsoever what I wanted to do in my life. I had no idea. I was just having fun at university. But back in the late 80s, that, that was a time when more graduates went into accounting than any other industry or profession. And so they had something in the UK called the milk round. And what that was, was that at the start of the third year, the final year, accounting firms would come and do an exhibition at the universities and you could apply for jobs while you're at it. And a few of my mates doing the economics said, I'm going to go and apply for an accounting job. I said, what's that? I said, well, I don't know, but let's try it. So I had no idea what to do. So I went along uh, to the exhibition, filled in a couple of forms to get an interview. Someone offered me a job, a local accounting firm in the, in the city in Sheffield. And they said to me, you can have a job and it's unconditional. 
In other words, it doesn't matter if you get your degree or not. And I thought, you know what? I'll just accept it because I have no idea what I want to do. It means I can enjoy my third year and have fun at university, knowing there's a job at the end of it. And anyway, I thought to myself, another three years of exams after that, what harm can another qualification do? And that was it. That was it. It was kind of just a, an accident, no big plan. But as it, as it happened in hindsight, I'm, I'm so glad I did it uh, and went through the, the process of getting a qualification. I'll be honest, I'm glad you did it too, because I think you're a big change agent in our industry. <laughs> oh, by the way, before we even start. Sponsor alert. Sponsor alert. Who's our sponsor this week, Ackerman? Relay. Or is it Relay? Oh, Jesus Christ. Here we go. <laughs> it's Relay, people. Oh. Most of the things I say are a joke. No, I, I tend to understand and I just don't like the joke. So that's why I think like, I yeah, don't get it. Yeah, that's my wife. We're going to talk about our own use of Relay Financial. The Sons of CPAs powered by Relay. Our bank account is with Relay, and it's been going smashingly well so far. We've, what have we, we done on our bank account? We've uh, made money. We've reimbursed ourselves, so we've done distributions. We're reimbursed ourselves for equipment. For all you listeners out there, we want the stuff sounding better. Yeah, because when you take a reimbursement, that's an expense. We can deduct that. Maybe. We're not teaching accounting here. You said you but, don't even know how I did accounting. I know how. To that's not. That's yes. not what we're talking about. Relay is so easy to set up. I was skeptical. I have to admit, I was skeptical. I was like, "This is." I don't think we could set up a bank account this fast. And relay, we set it up in like twenty minutes. It really did take less than a week, ten minutes to fill everything out, and then just verifying that we're a real company, and then it was set up effortless connected with zero couple steps there so you listeners as their advisor get bank fees that don't break and they sync directly into quickbooks online or zero from my experience it's a direct fee and it is a strong fee they got a pretty strong grip on there you'll also get detailed transaction data so you won't have to use google to decode the transactions Relay even embeds check images. That's a big one too. Check images. I don't like pulling checks. Plus, you don't have to share passwords and two-factor authentication codes with Relay. Safely log into client banking with your own login. That's a huge thing. You have one login for all your clients. It's like your Gusto login or your Zero login. It's one login. That is a safe value add right there because that saves you some time. And it's also safe. And if everyone was on relay it would make it so much easier we sell the shit out of this ad you're welcome relay. Well, well no no i mean let's let's be fair to the listener out there are you fast forwarding did you fast forward through this and are you even listening we're making it impossible for you to fast forward because it's so long you got anything to say closing closing arguments here i like relay we're gonna use it more you guys should too i got a little high since we started reading um and I kind of forgot where we were at. So I think you should just visit RelayFi.com forward slash Sons of CPAs. That's Sons with with an S. CPAs. There's three S's in there. You can't get it wrong. Sons of um, CPAs. Please use the code, people. So what made you fall in love with accounting once you got into the accounting firm? Actually, I have no idea because, I mean, when I started doing my training contracts, 
I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I and actually didn't enjoy doing audit work at all. Audit work seemed to be pointless to me. I found it really painfully difficult and, and a waste of time. But why I did you find it difficult? Like, what was it about audit? I don't know. I I think it was because I just didn't see the point of it. Because you get you you're going to it's all backwards. Yeah, yeah. You go to grotty engineering rooms and and you get stuck in in a warehouse somewhere <laughs> counting invoices that are all dirty and grubby. And I thought this is not very glamorous at all. So I didn't enjoy that. But when I did the exams, the professional exams, I the ones I found the easiest and the ones I enjoyed was the tax. So I got really into tax. I did I did well at tax so much so that when I qualified in 1991. The partners called me into the office. They called everyone into the office because in 1991 in the UK there was a recession and most of the people who qualified were then made redundant. And so I was then called in and the first thing they said to me, the partners said, Mark, you don't like audit, don't you? And I'm thinking, oh dear, I'm going to get, I'm going to get kicked out here. <laughs> You're going to get sacked. I, no, I, I, said, I said, no, I don't like audits. But you seem to like the tax, they said. Yeah, I like tax. So they seconded me into their income tax department. I spent two years doing income tax. And then they said to me, do you know what? It's about time we had a corporation tax manager. Will you be our corporation tax manager? So that was um, that I really, really enjoyed doing the taxes. It seemed to make more sense to me. But then I decided by that stage, I was six years into the profession. And then thinking, I don't want to be an employee. I'm not really employable. I don't like, I'm not very good at being told what to do. And I thought, you know what? I want to, <laughs> I want to do my own thing. I want to start my own accounting firm. I had no idea how to do it, but that was kind of my thing to to start my own firm. That's, so, yeah. I mean, so uh, just to touch on the tax thing, did you find that there's more things you can do strategically with tax or what was the difference? Because they're both compliance related, tax and audit. Yeah, I think, well, partly I, taxes made sense to me but i think another thing was i felt i was making a difference to clients when i was when i was helping them save tax coming with ideas to restructure their business and save them some money you you got people appreciating what you did when i went into the profession i kind of hoped that i could go into the profession to make a difference in some way to make a difference to the lives of the clients not mm -hmm. to be just ticking boxes and so on which is why i didn't like the audit but the tax felt like i was adding value in some way yeah, that's that's a big lead into your an, an evangelist for value. When but, you went to start your own accounting firm, what was, what were the things that you that where you were working where you're like, there's no way I'm going to do it this way when I start my own accounting firm? Yeah, interesting question. Um, so, well, firstly, I, I, I was never going to do audit, but fortunately, at that time in the UK the the government were increasing audit thresholds so whereas in 1988 any corporate structure had to have an audit they then started to increase thresholds to such a level where when i was a sole practitioner the sort of clients you would attract wouldn't need audits anymore so if you had a, if you had a, a a one million turn of a business a five million turn of a business you wouldn't need to have an audit that that then disappeared which is great for me so i could start attracting those clients that were 1 million, 2 million turnover companies where there was lots of tax planning opportunities, but no need to offer audit. So that made it a bit easier for me. When I started my accounting firm, I, I really focused on the tax side. And that was kind of the message. Whenever I met with a potential client, then my focus is always, how can I help them save some tax? Uh, and that was my way of getting in and, and hopefully sign, sign them up as a client by demonstrating I could add some value by saving the money. 
Well, you're working for them and not working for the authorities. With audit, it's really just you're reporting, right? And with tax, it's like you said, strategy. So I think that's more of a client provider relationship. It leads to better relationships moving forward. So so you're so you have your own accounting practice. Then what made you decide that you're gonna go on your own in a different way and start consulting for accounting firms? Yeah, well, that was kind of another accident as well. I mean, I, I wish I could say that my whole life was carefully planned out, <laughs> but it was really just going from one accident to another. And uh, and it was because I made such a, a mess of my first two and a half years, three years of running my accounting firm. I I was young. I thought I knew it all. And yes, I was good at doing taxes. Um, that, that was the thing I was good at and tax planning. I would I would go to bed at night reading technical books on how to restructure businesses and save taxes. That was the thing that I loved. But what I didn't know was how to run a business. And so two and a half years in, I was, I'd grown fast. I'd moved into offices, grown into new offices twice. I'd hired a whole load of team members. I think I had at one point, were a team of 13 of us. But for the first two and a half years, I wasn't making money. I was working crazy hard just to make ends meet. And it wasn't until the end of 1998 when I, I met someone, a friend of mine, who's now a friend of mine called Steve Pipe, who ran something called the, the Accountants Masterclass, a three-day physical event. And that changed my mindset about how you think about running a professional services firm. And then that took me on a bit of a journey where in 1999, I then decided to go on the four-day accountants boot camp run by Paul Dunn another one of my mentors and heroes now. And it was Paul Dunn in 19, when I went in the summer of 99, he then introduced me to Ron Baker, who, I, who again is another, another one of my heroes now and mentors. And it was in ni- end of 99 when, when Ron explained what this whole thing of value pricing was. I'd never heard of value pricing. I'd grown up in the profession believing you had to keep timesheets. I, I didn't think there was another way of pricing. I thought that's what you had to do. And when Ron explained value pricing to me in late 99, it was like a light bulb went on because suddenly everything I learned at university about economics made sense. It started to, Ron talked a lot about the background, the theory and so on. His first book is all about the theory. And it it, it suddenly made the theory come alive to me. I could see how economic theory was really useful in something. I have to set price in a way that makes it, it, it profitable. So, Having stumbled across value pricing in 1999, I started applying it in my accounting firm. And I got some extraordinary results right from the very start. I got so many quick results just in the first few months of using it that I I was in touch with Steve Pike from 12 months earlier because I'd been on his three-day accountants masterclass. I, I kept in touch with him and shared with him the things I was doing. And a year later... He said, Mark, I need to have you as a guest speaker because you're doing some amazing things. Would you come to one of my events of accountants and, and talk for an hour about your story, what you've done over the last 12 months? So this was October 1999, uh, November 1999. And uh, I went to, to speak for an hour to a room full of accountants. And I just shared my story of the mistakes I'd made and then the change I'd gradually made over the previous 12 months, mainly the last two or three months in pricing. And... I was amazed by the reaction. I got so many people wanting to talk to me during the, the coffee break, the lunch break. And then Steve said to me, he was running nine events at that time a year. And he said to me, I've never had the same guest speaker come back. Will you be the guest speaker for all nine of my events in, uh, this was 2000. 
and so for, in 2000, I started speaking to rooms full of rooms of accountants at Steve's events. And then in 2002, 2003, we made the decision to go into business together. He was running a network of accountants in the UK called AVN. And we decided to go into business 50-50. I shortly after sold my accounting firm. And so we ran an organization in the UK, a network of accountants for just over a decade. And that's when I started working with, in the profession, working with accountants. Uh, and then Steve retired. And I decided at that time that by then we're into 2014, I could see the world changing. I wanted to do stuff that wasn't physically events. So I decided to set up this business, which is the Value Pricing Academy, which is entirely virtual and teaching value pricing to, to my students. So that's, that's, in a nutshell, how I kind of got into it. It was just because I'd applied so much in late 99. It had a huge impact on my own firm that when I spoke to other accountants, it's it something that just seemed to resonate. It, it was something I found that I, I realized that the struggles that I was having, the mistakes I was making, I wasn't alone. Everybody was making the same mistakes and pricing wrong and pricing too low. And, and so I, I kind of, by accident, hit on something that seemed to be a message that people wanted to hear. So what yeah. were the biggest mistakes that you were making when you first started? Pricing was the number one mistake. I, I was uh, partly, I mean, it's, I could break that down to so many things. I was pricing <laughs> based on the hour, which is a stupid thing to do. I was hourly billing, hourly pricing, crazy way of and pricing. And how did you come up with your hourly rate? Was it just something you made up? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it is a made up number. It's, a cra it's crazy. We think there's some science behind it. So I, I've done... I've done benchmarking studies uh, over the years and and in the UK in about 2005 did a big benchmarking study of accounting firms where we were, I was looking at how firms price. And what I found was that in the UK, I, one of the questions I asked was, well, how do you come up with your charge out rates? And it's always a multiple of, it's a multiple of chargeable salary costs. And for my benchmarking studies, the average is three and a half times. And that's pretty well what most firms do. It's a number between three and four, but average is about just under three and a half times. And, and that's why you get, I remember before I discovered value pricing, when I started my accounting firm in 1996, a lot of the gurus were talking about the third, a third, a third model. In other words, an accounting firm, you should find that whatever you, whatever your annual revenue is, your fees, uh, you would find that a third of that is your chargeable salary costs, a third of that is your fixed cost, and a third should be your profit. Uh, and interesting, I was finding in my benchmarking studies that the average net profit was 33%. And it actually makes sense because if you're doing, if you're working out your hourly rates at just over three times salary costs, by the time you factor in some write-offs, you kind of got that. That's the typical business model. And the problem with that is you're then creating a self, you're creating a ceiling on that. A self-fulfilled prophecy almost, right? Absolutely, yeah. 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 And I wasn't getting 33% net profit margin because I was particularly bad at the pricing conversation. I, I attracted the wrong types of clients. I ended up writing so much time off in those early years, so much time written off, so much scope creep problems. I mean, you, you asked me the question, what, what mistakes did I make? I made every mistake in the book. It was it was it was crazy, and, and and the pricing mistakes were the biggest ones. But I made other mistakes as well, hiring mistakes. Uh, I hired the wrong people, and that caused me a, a big problem as well. Well, fundamentally, were you charging like if you're doing hourly, you cannot charge people up front too, and that's where write-offs come in. 
absolutely. One of my big problems was I was as I was growing my firm, I was I was so obsessed with GRF, which is gross recurring fees. So I, I think it's the same in the US, but in the UK, accounting firms are, are valued at a multiple of annual recurring fees, of gross recurring fees, typically one to 1.2. And so everyone seems to be obsessed with growing top line, because if we can build a million dollar practice, we can in theory sell it for a million dollars at some point. And, and it was almost a case of I was more obsessed with winning clients at any expense to grow my top line at the expense of profit, of profitability. So, yeah, I was growing crazy fast. I was winning clients and I thought I was successful. And I thought that if I at some point, if I keep winning clients, it'll suddenly magically become a hugely profitable and valuable practice. But actually, that doesn't happen. That, that was never going to happen because I was winning clients largely on price. I was going in at a lower rate than what the previous accountant might be charging, which is which is absolutely stupid. I was competing on price, and so that's always going to kill your margins. Uh, and you everybody's going to be happy during the sales process. Oh wow, you're only going to charge me this much? Where do I yeah. sign? Yeah, but what happens, of course, is when you one of the things I I I learned was uh, or two things I learned. Well, one one was. When you compete on price, you you win a certain type of client, the poor quality clients, the people who are just looking for the cheapest that will never value you. So I, I, I had a terrible client base after two years. It was the wrong clients. And the other problem which you were just referring to about the other problem with charging based on the hour, if you don't give a price up front, then you can't get paid up front. And, and so my process was I would do the work. I would then add up the hours, send out the itemized invoice, and then I'd keep my fingers crossed, hoping they might pay me. And sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't. I, I, I had so much writ so many write-offs in those first few years. But I was so obsessed with this idea of winning clients at all costs. Very often I would pick up clients that gut feeling, I had this feeling they couldn't afford me. They weren't able to pay me. But I was so keen to help people, I would just do the work anyway, and then hope, hope they'd be able to pay me afterwards. And very often they didn't. I think a lot of a lot of um, professionals too tend to have that feeling is I don't want to put them on the street. But really, you know, Apple's not telling them you can't buy our new phone and they're walking around with a new iPhone. You know, and there's little things you can pick up on on these clients and you can see their financials, too. I mean, talking about write offs like our firm, fundamentally, we, we don't deal with write offs for five years. We haven't had a write off. We just had a ten thousand dollar write off this company did run out of money and what they used to justify any write-off that they asked for was hours that we spent and they pulled an, a number out of their own pocket and they decided that they were going to do things hourly afterwards because the industry does i don't know how to respond to that we never mentioned hours we never we never tracked our hours apparently they were tracking our hours behind the scenes and they had some numbers. They said six hours and 57 minutes was spent on this. And this was this. And they're not talking about outcomes. Outcomes were fine. What would you say to something like that? Well, that's a, that's a weird, I've never had that situation before. It's a but, weird one. I, I do get, I do sometimes get people say to me when I, they say, well, my client insists on an hourly rate. They want to know the number, they, they want to pay based on, based on the hour, which I find staggering. I, I mean, I would, as a customer, I would never, want to, uh, to have an when I work when I engage lawyers for example I always want an hourly uh, sorry a fixed price up front I rarely get it which frustrates <laughs> me with lawyers but I want to know I want I want certainty I want I want to know what the price is so I can plan I can budget for it uh, and that's what I think 
That's what most people. Well, you're buying an outcome. You're buying what, what are they going to do for you? You have a problem. What, you know, let's say you're getting sued or something like I need you to help me lawyer. Uh, Okay. Well, we can do it for this much an hour. Okay. How many hours is that going to take? Well, we don't really know. You know, it's, this is the kind of thing where then you don't know, are you going to really solve my problem as a firm? You know, we, we try to sell those outcomes. And I think this is, this is really odd scenario. I don't mean to bring that one up, but that's just Odd, accountants odd. love the weird scenario to plan their whole accounting firm off of. So for traditional firms that have been around for a while, what do you tell them when they you know, they have legacy clients, like kind of how you had, you had two and a half years of legacy clients. How do you go about kind of changing your firm and implementing the fixed price model? Like what's a, what's an, there's no easy first step, but what's the first step to kind of start thinking about? Yeah, well, I, I had to address that in my firm. And, and when, I, when I discovered value pricing in 99, the f- first things that I applied it to was new services. So new services for new clients, because that's the, an easy place to start. And then I also created a, a, a way of pricing accounting compliance services for new clients. So for the first 12 months of applying value pricing, I was only pricing new services and new clients because I was I was scared of dealing with the existing client base. So I, my fear was if I change the price for my existing clients, what if I lose them all? And, and, and I know a lot of people have that struggle. And then after about a year, I started thinking, no, this is crazy. I have these 200 clients that I'm not making money on. And to be honest, some of them I'm better off without. And so one of the things that I, I ask people to do is just step back and, and, and think more holistically. So what I did was I, I started to apply the 80-20 principle, Pareto principle, where I listed all my clients and I ranked them in, in terms of the fee. And interesting, I found from that, it, I was staggered, but I realized that the bottom 40% of my clients, 40% accounted for, I seem to remember it was just under 2% of my fees which was staggering, but that's because I had a lot of tax and only clients, a lot of small corner shops, taxi drivers. I was, I was, I was getting the wrong sorts of clients. My positioning was all wrong, but I had, I did have some really good quality A-class clients. And so I realized that if I put my prices up uh, and I, and I lost some, that might not be the end of the world. In fact, that might be a good thing. In fact, what I say to people is think of it this way. If you were to put your price up by 20% on average across your entire firm, and let's imagine that you lose 20% of clients as a result of that. If you do the math, the top line doesn't actually change. It, it changed a little bit, but not a lot. You're, if, you're, if you're doing 100,000, 20% increase you means, you, means you're times by 1.2, and then you're times by 0.8 because you're going to lose 20%. Your top line hardly changes, which means your bottom line hardly changes, which means you've got the same result, the same profit, but you're now working four days a week rather than five days a week. And the 20% of clients that leave are going to be the ones that value you less, the ones that always complain, moan, whinge, pay you late, and so on. Whereas the clients that value you, your A-grade clients, they will happily pay pay more because they value the relationship. And so I taught, so I applied a process myself in, I think it was the end of 2000, 2001. I applied a process in my own firm, which I've now been teaching for the last 20 years now. And in my particular case, I put up my prices by, on average, 20% across my entire client base in the hope that in the hope that I would lose the bottom 40% of clients. And I failed. 
because you didn't lose none, them, right? They almost stayed. None of the, almost, almost none of the buggers left. <laughs> and so, I, so I, the, the following year, I, replete, I repeated the process where I, I, I increased by another 20%. So I, in two years, I increased my average price by 44%. And some clients did leave, but nowhere near as many as I thought. And I've been teaching the process to, the, to, to other accountants for the last 20 years. Uh, and people who follow the process tell me I've increased my price by, as, uh, over, by 20% on average. And in some cases, they say I've not lost a single client. And the reason for that is because we have to remember that we're in a relationship business. In other words, people buy, people work, clients are clients of, of you because of the relationship they have. They're not buying cups of coffee. It's not a transactional business. It's a relationship. We, we, we providing, providing a service and a, and a recurring service at that. And so there's this relationship they have with us every single year. And so it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to leave and find a new accountant or a new book, bookkeeper. We have that kind of lock-in. As long as we're adding great value, as long as we're giving great service, then there's a loyalty effect there. And so it's quite hard to leave. And I found that a lot of times when firms have followed this, putting their prices up, they often tell me that they spoke to a client and they said, you know what, I wondered when you'd do that. Uh, we know you're way too cheap. <laughs> and that's it. A lot, of, a lot of our clients love what we do. They think we're great and they know we're too cheap. And, and we just... But they say that with a smile too, right? Like they don't really necessarily mind and not griping. I think they appreciate it. The change management is hard and it's a long process. You know, pricing philosophy and a lot of different ways of approaching this, everybody's afraid of increasing prices. I think fundamentally as, as a profession, we're underpriced too. Well, let, let me ask you this. How do you, I always have an issue with determining the baseline price. You're trying to come up with a value price for somebody. Where's a good way to start to figure out how much a tax return is worth or how much bookkeeping services are worth for a particular client? Yeah, well, that's that's the big question, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so probably the, why you need to sign up for your uh, whole pricing have, thing. But tell me, in, value price in, academy, in two yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, with, with some service like tax planning, it's a little bit easier because if we're saving somebody tax and we can quantify the, the quantify that, we can use that as a basis for value. But as you said, the question is, yeah, but what if you're filling in a tax return? What if you're doing the bookkeeping? How how do you quantify value of compliance work? And the answer the answer which I learned from my friend Ron Baker is, ultimately, value is in the hearts and minds of customers. Only the customer can determine what value is. And so, our job is to is to communicate the value because. One of the things we are very poor at in a profession is, is we're, not, we're not very good with words. We're not very good with telling people the benefits of what we do. We might say to someone, we can do your bookkeeping. It's going to cost you $5,000. And they'll say we're good that's with numbers. We're not good with words, right? Yes. Yeah, they'll say that's, that's expensive because what's the value? Why is bookkeeping worth 5000 So what we have to do is we have to use words, the right language to communicate the benefits of bookkeeping. So first, we have to, we have to be better at communication, uh, the words that we use, the language to build up the value. And, and we also, but then the other thing is ultimately what we want to do is we want to price somewhere that's close, as close as possible to what economists call uh, the buy, the buyer's reservation price, which is more commonly referred to as maximum willingness to pay. Because ultimately if a, if a client is willing to pay 
$8,000 for bookkeeping, then why shouldn't we charge $8,000? It doesn't matter about the, res the, the hours that are spent. If the client sees value in what we're going to do at being $8,000, then we should charge $8,000. Because anything we, anything we charge below that number is leaving money on the table. But of course, the big question is, well, how do we know what their maximum willingness to pay is? How do we know they're willing to pay $8,000? Because every, firm's, every client is willing to pay a different price. And that's where we have to start using various techniques, partly in terms of the questions that we asked, but also things like something which is common now, but uh, it was the first thing I did when I started to explore value pricing in 99, which is giving the client's choices, coming up with different options. Think of it as the bronze, silver, gold, because you do not know how much someone's willing to pay. But if you, if you sell bookkeeping at $5,000 and they're willing to pay $8,000, they'll say yes but you've left 3,000 on the table. But if you had a, a bronze bookkeeping package at 5,000 and a silver at, at seven and a gold at, at say nine, and the client's willing to pay eight, then they'll go for the 7,000 package or they might think, you know what, perhaps the 8,000 is worth getting. And so if you don't have a more expensive option, if you don't give the client choices, you are always throwing money away. You're always leaving money on the table. So what... I guess I don't really have a question on that because I, I agree, but I'm starting to change my opinion on giving options. I feel like I I should start selling certainty. I'm looking more of a like a subscription and I'm very comfortable with where the value price conversation is going with subscriptions because then you can offer different levels of services for these prices and almost and, and I don't know what your thoughts are on subscriptions. That's what Ron Baker's new thing is now. He's talking all about subscriptions. I feel very comfortable being able to say all of our clients are on some form of subscription, one or another, and everything under that umbrella of what we're supposed to serve. It's just, you know, figuring out the price for that is not as easy as as going to what would you pay? Well, I think the benefit of a out. subscription is, I think the, the hardest part of value pricing is the change orders and the scope creep on stuff. So if you come up with some sort of subscription model where we do everything for you, and it's that price, then you don't really have to worry about scope creep. Yeah. But, but the hardest thing for me, like you were saying, Marcus, how do you how do you figure out that optimal price for the client? And for, over our nine year journey on value based pricing, it takes a lot of time too. To like, it, it, there's definitely an art. It's not a science. You can't say, oh, this is their tax return. This is how much you should charge. Well, it, you know, it, to speak on that, it's it's almost an art for for you as a firm, and and I don't know if I'm going to take the wind out of your sails here, Mark, but that's where our conversation has, has kind of evolved to. And this whole subscription model and stuff, I, I, agree, I agree with it, with what Ron talks about. He calls it value pricing 2.0. And the, the only, the challenge is I think there are so many firms struggling with the whole concept of value pricing. And so to add yeah, another- Yeah, we're not to 1.0. Uh, yeah, and, get to and, 1.0 before we get to 2.0. Uh, absolutely, and and what I what I found is uh, I so I've been teaching value pricing since year 2000 now over 20 years, and and what I found in the early days is that I I teach people value pricing and they fail big style with it because they couldn't get their head around it because because value pricing is difficult, it's conceptually is difficult, Val, value is subjective, you can't touch and feel and measure it, and and also because we're not selling cups of coffee like Starbucks, every client is different with different scope factors and so on. So, so 
I, I agree the comment you said about value pricing is, is largely an art, and it is, but most people aren't even at that stage yet. And so the way I teach it is uh, I, I teach the pricing journey where take things one step at a time. And for somebody on hourly, moving to value pricing is conceptually too big a step and most fail. So the first thing I tell people to do is start off with moving to fixed pricing, flat fees, which isn't value pricing because the way that people come up with flat fees is usually based on their best guess at the number of hours. So it's not value pricing, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a big first step because A, it's giving the client certainty, it's giving the client a price up front. And, and, and once you've got a process to give a, a fixed price, once you've got a process to give a fixed price that you know with confidence will give you a profit because you've factored scope in, then it becomes much easier to start to apply value pricing. So I tell people, start off with fixed fees. Start off with, with getting that right. Once you've got a system in place, once you've got a way of pricing, which you know will give you a, a, a good level of profit, then we can start to apply other things. And so when it comes to fixed pricing, it's, it's really about having a process for assessing scope, figuring out scope, uh, what is the scope of the work, and being able to come up with, with confidence, uh, some sort of price. And the way I, what I did for my own, own accounting firm is I built software to do that. And then once you've done that, once you've got a system for giving a price, a, a, a price, then the next step I would say is, well, next, then start to use menu pricing. So come up with a price and then say, okay, this is the price for bronze. Let's now start to give the client a choice of, of a silver and a gold option and price those based on, you know, add more value into those packages. Very often the things we do to add more value are actually the easiest things to deliver, the lowest cost. Um, co compliance work data entry is quite high cost for the compared to the value. But once we start moving up the value curve and start to do things like creating reports that show analysis, color, charts, benchmarking, well, software can pr produce reports in seconds, but the value is huge. And so as we add more value and create more expensive packages, we, we then start to get into the realms of value pricing. And then we can start to do, use other things. We can start to use price psychology, start to use the right language. We can start to do things like, if you said to a client, at the end of every month, we'll have a review meeting with you. And would you like that review meeting to be with me, the senior partner? Or would you like that review meeting to be with Bob, my assistant? Well, if the client says, oh, I'd like the meeting with you, that's them telling you that they value meeting with you. If that's the case, you charge a premium price. And if the price is then too high, you go back to the client and say, well, this is the price if you deal with me. But if you're happy with Bob, this is the price. And then you let the client start to choose. And, and when you start to think down that route, there's so many different factors, ways that the client can choose the exact package they want. And those clients that see the value of those things and have that willingness to pay, they will choose to pay the higher prices. What is that noise? We got people doing some lawn work outside, but that's okay because we're talking about reach reporting right now. We're not talking about lawn work then. <laughs> no. This is our reach reporting ad. You've never built a report like what reach can offer because you've never had such an easy access to all your financial data before. I feel like uh, I already know how to use this product and I haven't started using it. <laughs> you want a product that you can use right away because if it takes a lot of time to, to do it, accounts don't have that time. 
Well, we also don't want to learn new things. A lot of times we just want something to work right out of the box because we spent our whole lives learning new things. We don't want to learn something new when it comes to reporting. We know what we want the report to look like, and now we just want it to be effortless. I think Reach does that. You can build any metrics that you want. So using itself, but with live accounting data. Live accounting data. God, That's pretty accountants cool. love that. They do. They love Excel. Joining yeah. live data, Excel-like functionality, and gorgeous presentation. You know, it's like Word, Excel, PowerPoint all working together. Reach is the Microsoft suite of reporting. <laughs> suite. <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. The clients <laughs> will absolutely love the reports that I will send them. But it takes minutes to build and create. So basically, it's not going to take you that much time, and you're going to be able to give them fantastic reports. So for our firm, at least, the success of our advisory services really relies on a strong relationship, and strong relationships start with communication. You can't just give them data without the visuals, right? They need the visuals. Clients yeah. get a deep understanding of their financial situation. And reporting for clients is tough for a bunch of reasons. It is tough because every client's a little different. So you need a software that can help you standardize some processes and create beautiful reports. And that's what reached us. Yeah. The dashboards and reports that kind of tell a story, but turn your custom reports into templates you can automate. I love the customization to their reports too. You can customize your branding. They basically white label everything. You like custom Jordans. I do you like custom, custom Jordans. And you like your custom reporting. Custom Jordans and custom reporting. I can't fathom what they're gonna do next. <laughs> so go to reachreporting.com and check them out. Reach Reporting, complex data made simple. So menu pricing, that is another topic. Your effective pricing platform. And, you know, I think that's fundamentally different than a lot of structure structure that we're using in the States of how we're pricing. You know, I, I think a lot of firms do have some form of, well, maybe not a lot, but some should have some form of price matrix. Tell us a little bit more about how effective pricing, you know, delivers that proposal and makes it a little more effortlessly. I think both of them work fundamentally different because there's a pricing philosophy and there's there's a philosophy behind it. You know, there there's a if this, then that. It's almost like an algorithmic approach to pricing and to present that menu rather than just off of the hip, so to speak. Yeah, so when I, I mean, I, read, I, I wrote my first version of that software in 99 in my accounting firm. When I, just, when I realized at the end of 99, I had to give a price up front, I then had to figure out, well, how do I do that? And what I built into the effective pricing software was all the, the language, the price psychology of the process. So, for example, one of the things that uh, a mistake that we make when we're pricing is because we hate rejection, because we hate it when the client says that's expensive, we tend to give people a price that we think and hope they'll say yes to. And when they do, they usually would have paid us more money. So we've left money on the table. We go in too cheap because of that, that worry about them saying that's expensive. And yet, if when you give somebody a price, they accept that price, then that tells you something really clearly. You've gone in too cheap. You've left money on the table. And so we need to change our mindset. Our mindset needs to be that we want to welcome the that's expensive so i can't afford that that's way outside my budget we need to welcome that and so we need to build that into our system because then we can tap into one of those most powerful principles of price psychology which is anchoring so what we should always do is purposely give a price that's too high because that creates an anchor because very often with a lot of our services particularly the more valuable ones like let's say business advisory if if you're talking to a client about business advisory services they've probably never bought that before they have no idea what the price should be 
for that service. They're probably in their mind, they've got as an anchor what they're paying you for compliance work, for tax returns. And so they're, they're hoping and expecting a price that's in that ballpark. And it shouldn't be because advisory is so much more valuable. So we have to create some new anchors in their mind. And one of the ways that we do that is by making sure the first price we give them is really high. And then we work down from that. And that's exactly what one of the key things within the effective pricing software is that you ask the client some questions up front. Some, to, some questions to, to figure out the scope, but more important is to figure out their preferences. Like, do you want this done fast or slow? Do you want me to be the person you have the meeting with? So you ask them various choice preference questions and they will often say, yes, I want that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I'll have that. And every time they say yes, you know that when you reveal the price, it's going to be a high price. And that's what you want because that's there to create an anchor. The client wants to buy from you. It's just a price issue. And if the price is really high, you then work with the client. You can go backwards and say, okay, well, the reason it's that price is because you said you want to work with me and not Bob. The reason is that price is because you want to have these extra meetings. The reason is that price is because you want our fast service, not our slow service. So tell me, do you want to pay that price or would you like to save a bit of money by working with Bob? Let me show you the price so you can make a decision on that. And so by working with the client involved in the pricing process, they end up, they end up telling you which of those features are perhaps less valuable and which things they really, really want. And usually what happens is people end up paying a much higher price than what they would have done. Because if they were coming into the meeting thinking it's going to cost two or 3000 to do advisory work and you come up with a price of 15000 they st they want to buy. They just can't afford 15000 But you can guarantee they'll end up somewhere with that process way higher than the two or three they originally thought when they came into the meeting. You're pricing the intangibles. Yeah. yeah. So, so the key is instead of just sending them, you know, bronze, gold, silver, whatever, you actually talk with them about the price and you say, hey, based on everything you just, we had our initial phone call, here's our pricing phone call, this is what I came up with. And as you're talking, you start with that anchor and then work your way down. Yes. I think it needs to happen on the first phone call though. I think that a lot of this can happen if you have an effective tool, like effective pricing. <laughs> Got the book on, on pricing. Because you lose a lot between calls too. I think like they could go, they end up, Hanging up on the first call, they well, hear just, everything. How, how long in between when you have that initial phone call and the pricing call? What's the uh, what's the ideal time for that? Yeah, good question. So, I, one of the mistakes I made again back in the nineteen nineties, I, I was in always I was always in a rush, and so I'd meet with the prospective client, I'd, I'd tell them about how I could help them, I'd do most of the talking. And then I'd want to get to the I'd, I'd want the, to get to the stage where they make a decision yes or no as soon as possible, uh, and you can't rush the pricing conversation because when you think about it, if this is a client that could be worth ten grand and they're with you for ten years, that's a hundred grand. So we can't afford to rush the conversation. So I, I think you do need to have at least two conversations. And the one thing that we aren't very good at, good at in the profession, I wasn't is we have to become better at asking the right questions. We have to start, to, we have to uncover what they really want, what the real value is. Because when a client comes to you, they usually say something like, I'm looking for an accountant to do my bookkeeping. I'm looking for someone to do a cash flow forecast. But you know, there's way more than that they want. We have to ask the right questions. And so we shouldn't present them with a solution until we really know what the underlying issues are, what their real pain is, what their goals are, what they want out of life, their business. And so I would always recommend that you have a, a meeting that's, I call it the fact find, to better understand how we can solve their problems. 
And then we have the pricing conversation in a separate meeting. And I would suggest something like within seven days, while they're still, they've got the enthusiasm. So the, the idea is that you have the first meeting, the fact find, and then you get the client at the end of it to agree to the follow-up meeting. And that wants to be done, done fairly fast, uh, within three, four, five days. That then gives you time to, to go and reflect and think, okay, so what are the services that are gonna best meet their needs and how are we gonna price this? What's the one, give us, give accounts who are still doing, keeping track of time billing on hour. Give us one kind of takeaway, uh, big picture thing to help them. One big takeaway. If so, start again. So if, Sorry, if I'll, on the, I'll, I'll, one piece of advice, one. just one, one piece, piece of, of advice, advice for, for accountants today that are starting this pricing journey. Wow. So many things they could do. And I think back about the things I did. I, I think that tackling the big issue of repricing your existing clients is a huge opportunity. If you can get your average price up by 20% without losing clients, that, that could add on, depending on your cost structure, that could add on 30, 40, 50% to bottom line profit. And so uh, I think that the first step is, is, is really a mindset issue. It's about recognizing that, do you know what, if we put our price up and lose some clients, that's probably a good thing because we've probably got clients that we don't actually really enjoy working with. It's about recognizing that it's not about trying to work with everybody. It's about trying to work with the right clients. And, and so I think the, I think the starting point is really, a it's more of a mindset thing. It's a, it's a realizing that there's got to be a better way, a better way of pricing our, our firm. There's got to be a better way. Uh, and I go back to, the first thing I did in my firm when I was repricing existing clients was I, I just played with the numbers. I looked at my I looked at my fees. I started to play with some numbers and said, well, what if I put my price up by 20%? What if it's 25%? And what if uh, as a result, I lose 40% or 30%? And when you take a, a more holistic approach and look at it and realize, you know, there's a lot of money here at stake. I need to now explore this properly and spend some time in this area. Don't be rash. I think take so, your time this on is, this. Uh, too. Well, how can they find you? Pricing yeah. Academy and how we can find you on the interwebs. The best way to reach out to me is, number one is connect on LinkedIn. I have a Facebook group called Value Pricing with Mark Wickersham, uh, which is nearly 9,000 accounting professionals. There's a lot to learn. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, this has been amazing, Mark. Thanks for, thanks for talking with us. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you.